welcome to RaiderCast, the podcast that swan dives into the legends of all things Tomb Raider. Lara's world is one of prehistory, a world of monsters and the supernatural bordering on fantasy. Sure, it has its mad scientists and high-tech cyborgs, but at its core it is a world entombed in the past, and along with the light comes the dark. The darker side of humanity, power-hungry villains and cultists, but also with it, a dark side of mythology. Because if Lara's world is a world of gods and angels, then it is also a world of dark gods and demons. Welcome to Lara's Inferno. Evil has weaved itself into the fabric of Tomb Raider since day one. From Natla's genocidal crusade, the draconic Marco Bartoli, to the last revelations set, a dark presence has always loomed threateningly over Lara's escapades. In the year 2000's Tomb Raider Chronicles, one story takes us back to Lara's teenage years, and by her classic biography, her first adventure, to the Black Isle, which is what we'll mainly be digging into in this episode. One dark and stormy night, the then-teenage Lara was staying with Winston the butler and his wife at their home in Kanusi Island. Rumours of unusual lights and manifestations on a nearby island off the coast had worried Winston enough to contact Father Bram Patrick Dunstan, who we must assume has some prior experience with that sort of thing. He slips away on a boat to investigate the ghostly goings-on, and who should stow away but the curious Miss Croft. Now, what Lara experiences on the Black Isle would be enough to traumatise even the most seasoned demon hunter, so more credit to her for enduring everything she goes through. A corpse hangs from a gallows tree speaking to her with an unearthly voice from a place between worlds, requesting that she find his heart and return it to him. He explains further. My heart, girl. They have hidden my petrified heart in the roots of this, the world tree, down under the watchful gaze of the dragon dog. Shortly after, she discovers Father Dunstan having fought off what we can assume is Nidhogg the dragon, trapping it inside a deep, deep pit. He refers to it as a worm, and tells Lara that iron is particularly useful in repelling the mysterious creatures on the island. Retreating to the safety of an old chapel, Lara is then faced by sword-wielding ghostly skeletons and an extremely sinister spectre of another skeleton in a black hooded robe. This creature floats menacingly through the chapel and passes effortlessly through a wall, as ghosts tend to do. And what does Lara do? Well, she tries to follow it, of course, not through the wall, but in the same sort of direction. She finds herself beneath the chapel in a sprawling labyrinth and in following the ghost, she discovers a large mystical tome, a bestiary. Meanwhile, Father Dunstan has endured what we can only assume was a truly terrifying ordeal with, quote, some unpleasant fellows from down below. When he and Lara reunite, she tells him about the book, and about the protective symbols she found inside it. Father Dunstan explains that They'd need to draw these symbols on the floor and sit inside them to gain any form of protection, but otherwise dismissed her and heads off alone, again. 
So instead of staying where she was, she heads off to find some chalk and practice some good old-fashioned witchery in order to protect herself, because he certainly wasn't going to. While sketching the symbol on the floor, she's charged at by an enraged figure on horseback. He goes to attack Lara, but out of nowhere, Father Dunstan actually saves her. He shoves her out of the way, only to be bonked on the head and carried off by the murderous horseman. Now it's his turn to be rescued, and Lara does a fine job of it too. In their penultimate encounter, the horseman reveals himself as a demonic knight, trapped on the island 700 years ago by an abbot, likely the skeletal, black-hooded, robed ghost. He used to be a man, but thanks to the magic of an ancient scroll, he was transformed into a demon with eternal life. Only there was one problem. Demons can't cross running water, and so he was trapped for all eternity on a part of the Black Isle separated by a stream. In an attempt to encourage Lara to help him, the demon threatens to kill the priest unless she can find a way to stop the flow of running water. Luckily, Lara finds a watermill along the stream, but before she can cut off the flow of water, she's attacked by something resembling a demonic mermaid. A gnarly-faced, long-clawed sea hag of sorts tries to drown Lara, but she fights it off and tricks it into imprisonment by distracting it with a shiny coin. With the flow of water stopped, Lara heads for a final confrontation with the Demon Knight. As he advances towards her, Father Dunstan tells Lara to read the names from the bestiary. Askaroth, Aquiel, Arancula, Belial, Bukom, Boliath, Camos, Verdilat and the demon stops. Lara, knowing his name, now has control over him. Verdilet is unable to attack or even move, and Lara banishes him from the world. This is the end of the Black Isle adventure. So, how does the demonic depiction in Tomb Raider Chronicles match up to our own real-world myths and tales of demons and demonology? Demons appear in mythology far older than the Bible as we know it today, from Hebrew mythology, ancient Egyptian, Babylonian, Celtic mythology, across the world to Native American myth, Chinese and Japanese folklore, ancient tales of demons have held humanity in the grip of fear far back through history. One fairly common element seems to be that demons appear as a mishmash of dangerous parts of a selection of animals. Basically, everything that could rip, tear, bite, slice, whip, sting or hurt a human bundled together into a nightmarish evil hybrid. As a heads up, this episode is going to get pretty dark from here on out, so perhaps make sure the lights are on for the remainder, okay? In 2016, the oldest depiction of an ancient Egyptian demon was discovered, or rediscovered is more appropriate, from approximately 4,000 years ago. Along with two others, the demon was noticed by a Belgium-based Egyptologist, who spotted the creature depicted on a leather roll from the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. The demon in question was named Ikenti, and appeared as a large bird with a cat's head, and it was said to be the guardian to a fiery gateway. Two other demons were talked about by the researcher, Intep, a demon in the form of a dog-like baboon, and Cherry Banut, an unspecified figure with a human head, who seemed to stand guard at a temple of Thoth in his form as a moon deity. These demons were said to possess the ability to grip and decapitate trespassers. Amit, or Amut, was another Egyptian demonic hybrid, and also makes a fitting appearance in The Last Revelation's Temple of Horus. This demonic creature is depicted as a monstrous mashup of some of Egypt's deadliest predators. A hippo, a crocodile, and a lion, all mashed together. 
Amit waited beneath the scales of Mart, a place where the souls of the deceased were judged. The gods Anubis and Thoth would weigh the heart of the deceased against a feather. If the heart was pure and free of evil, then the soul could progress on its journey. However, if the heart weighed heavy and impure, then it was game over for the soul, and their heart was fed to Amut, the devourer of souls, to die a second time. Interestingly, Amut was said to reside next to a lake of fire, into which the heart was sometimes thrown instead. This may be one of the oldest representations of a hellish place for the unfortunate dead, like the sort described in the Book of Revelation, which bears a striking resemblance. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the Book of Life was cast into the lake of fire. In more recent mythology, Aztecs weren't afraid to get pretty horrifying with their ideas of demons. The following is a description from the Florentine Codex, a manuscript from the 16th century that included cultural research and native-drawn illustrations documenting all aspects of Aztec life, society, and ritual. This excerpt describes Ahuizotl, an apparent demon with a hunger for human flesh, and in particular, the crunchy parts. Very like the Tui, the small Tui dog, small and smooth, shiny. It has smooth, pointed ears, just like a small dog. It is black like rubber, smooth, slippery, very smooth, long-tailed, and its tail is provided with a hand at the end, just like a human hand is the point of its tail. And its hands are like a raccoon's hands or a monkey's hands. It lives, it is a dweller in watery caverns, in watery depths. And if anyone arrives there at its entrance, or there in the water where it is, it then grabs him there. It is said that it sinks him, it plunges him into the water, it carries him to its home, it introduces him to the depths. So its tail goes holding him, so it goes seizing him, and when the body is retrieved, the one it has drowned no longer has his eyes, his teeth, and his nails, it has taken them all from him. But his body is completely unblemished, his skin uninjured, only his body comes out all slippery wet as if one had pounded it with a stone, as if it had inflicted small bruises. When it was annoyed, when it had caught no one, or had drowned none of us commoners, then it was heard as if a small child wept, perhaps a baby, perhaps an abandoned one. Moved by this, he went there to look for it. So there he fell into the hands of the Ahuizotl. There it drowned him. It makes for especially grim reading, and when it's likely that if such events ever did happen, that something like an overly aggressive otter was to blame? It's understandable that such a story would terrify people. It's the sort of story that could be used as a deterrent to keep people away from dangerous places like lakes. It's not uncommon that the ideas of demons would be used as deterrents in many belief systems. Think of it like, be good or you'll go to hell and be tormented for all eternity. In Babylonian mythology, demons also appear as a terrifying mixture of animal parts. Two in particular fit this list quite nicely, Pazuzu and Lamashtu. Pazuzu, made more recently infamous as the possessing evil spirit from the Exorcist series, was the demon of the Southwestern Wind, an oddly specific title until you realise that the Southwestern Winds were the ones that brought locusts and storms with it. 
people feared this wind and its consequences and attributed demonic activity to it. Pazuzu was depicted as having a humanoid body, the head of a lion, two pairs of eagle-like wings on his back, large talons, and even a giant scorpion tail. You'd stand very little chance of escaping unscathed if you ever came into contact with such a being. However, Pazuzu was apparently commonly called upon for help by pregnant women, because his powers stood against another demon, the horrifying Lamashtu, who had a diabolical passion for tormenting expectant mothers or kidnapping children. She was thought of as a mythological hybrid, with a hairy body, a lioness's head, with donkey's teeth and ears, long fingers and blood-stained hands, and the feet of a bird with sharp talons. When these belief systems were at the height of their power, these entities wouldn't necessarily have been seen as demons the way that we think of them now. The modern ideas of what a demon is relies heavily on Old and New Testament's influence. When Christianity rose to power, the gods of old became the demons of the new religion. So many of the old gods, the hybrid creatures, were suddenly retconned in the new world and thought of as demonic entities. Many books throughout history have taken their reader down a dark and devilish path, exploring evil entities and promising power to those who can conjure them, providing that they survive the encounter. The Book of Abramel in the Mage, La Livre d'Esprit, The Munich Manual of Demonic Magic, Le Dragon Rouge, or The Grand Grimoire, Pseudomonarchia Demonum, and Dictionnaire Infernal. In terms of comparison to Tomb Raider, the bestiary Lara finds in the labyrinth seems to fit quite nicely alongside them. One of the most well-known texts is the Lesser Key of Solomon the King, or Ars Goetia. According to legend, the king invoked 72 demons and trapped them all inside a brass vessel and threw the vessel into a lake. If this story sounds familiar, then you may well have heard about it from 2011's game Uncharted 3, in which Nathan Drake embarks on a quest to find this artifact. The Goetia details the demonic names, their forms, the rituals and sigils necessary for summoning and banishing them. Many of these demons are described as hybrid animals, such as in the myths I mentioned earlier. For example, The seventh spirit is Amon. He is a Marquis great in power and most stern. He appeareth like a wolf with a serpent's tail vomiting out of his mouth flames of fire. But at the command of a magician he putteth on the shape of a man with dog's teeth is set in the head of a raven, or else like Citrine, a man with a he is a great head. prince and appeareth at first with a leopard's head and the wings of a griffin, a great king. His appearance is comely, like a man with a lion's face carrying a cruel viper in his hand he and riding upon a bear, prince, and appeareth in the form of an angel with a lion's head and a goose's foot and a hare's tail, and so forth. The demon Verdilet from Chronicles appears in the form of a human, so if we combine real-world myth with the in-game story, this is likely due to him first being alive as a human, before becoming a demon. The story concludes with Lara reading his name and gaining control over him. But where does this idea come from? Throughout fiction, the concept of a true name appears a lot. Names have power, so it would stand to reason that naming something and being able to command it would exert a certain amount of control over it. How often did you do something naughty as a child only to feel the dread of a parent screaming your full name at you? Not that you're a demon, of course. Well, at least I'd hope not. 
Other theories look at demonic or angelic hierarchy as an explanation for this trope. According to biblical myths, angels and demons follow strict ranks and order, obeying the will of those of higher rank. For example, when speaking of angelic beings, the lowest rank would be angel, and raise higher towards the multi-winged cherubim and seraphim. Demons, as fallen angels themselves, follow a similar infernal hierarchy, from monsters up to earls and princes and kings. So consider a demon having spent its existence being commanded by a higher authority, coming into contact with a human, in Tomb Raider's case, Lara, someone who knows its name. Of course it would do as it's told, it wouldn't dare question what it thought of as a higher authority, someone who might know more than it. How would a human know a demon's name? In an online interview with an exorcist from Switzerland, the exorcist was directly asked, why do you ask for the demon's name as part of the ritual? The answer given was this. The ritual requires it for a specific purpose. Naming something or knowing its name means having power over that thing. In fact, God gives Adam the power to name things. At the instant that the demon reveals his name, it shows that he has been weakened. If he doesn't say it, he is still strong. So, Father Dunstan was spot on by telling Lara to read out the infernal names in the hope of stumbling on the right one. To Lara's credit, she likely had the right idea by trying to draw that arcane symbol on the floor. Magic circles have been a prominent part of ceremonial magic for, well, as long as people have been practicing magic. Drawn on the floor, the practitioner, sorcerer, conjurer, whoever it is, stands inside the circle, which is filled with other occult symbols, intersecting lines, divine, angelic, or demonic names. This is usually for the sake of divine or infernal protection, and the one that Lara seemed to be copying on the floor would most likely have worked in that fashion too. A particularly detailed and old depiction of this is seen in an engraving carved in the 1800s by an English occultist named Ebenezer Sibley. The engraving was named Edward Kelly, a magician, and displays the 16th century magician stood inside a magic circle invoking spirits, possibly alongside another occultist, Dr. John Dee. At one point on the Black Isle, Father Dunstan tells Lara that iron fights off the demons. Now, this was something I'd not read about before, yet upon research is something I'd heard about quite often and not pieced it together. In folklore, iron is said to repel ghosts and other supernatural malevolent entities. An iron fence around a cemetery is believed to keep the souls of the dead contained and stop them from roaming the earth. Iron, in the form of a horseshoe, if hung up, was originally a form of warding off evil spirits before it became a symbol of good luck. An interesting coincidence comes in the form of a folktale about Saint Dunstan. According to the story, he once nailed an iron horseshoe to the devil's hoof, which caused the devil great pain. Before removing the horseshoe, Saint Dunstan made the devil promise that he would never enter a place which had a horseshoe hanging up for protection. There's every possibility that Tomb Raider's demon-hunting Father Dunstan was named after this 10th century English bishop. Interestingly, Verdelet specifies not being able to cross running water. Where did that idea come from? And the answer to that might be quite simple. Very often, water is a symbol of purity and of life. It's referenced in the classic horror novel Dracula by the author Bram Stoker, and it wouldn't surprise me if that name was further inspiration for the name Father Bram Patrick Dunstan. 
Now, another little fun fact I stumbled over was to do with the inclusion of a labyrinth in this story. Was it included because mazes have a history of confusing the heck out of Tomb Raider players? Undoubtedly, however, there may be more to it. It seems that demons are, well, they may have some horrifying diabolical powers, but they're not the smartest of supernatural creatures. Labyrinths have very ancient significance of practically being prisons. Think of the ancient Minoan myth of Theseus and the Minotaur, a half-bull, half-human hybrid, <coughs> demonic symbolism. It tells the story of a Minotaur which had been trapped inside a labyrinth. Why? It seems that demons can't find their way out, or at least they get distracted long enough to lose their way. In an excerpt from the book, the Encyclopedia of Spirits by Judica Isles, we get the following snippet of information. Most low-level demons are afflicted with the spiritual equivalent of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Exploiting this quality provides safety. Sprinkle poppy or miller seeds on the ground, anything abundant, tiny and difficult to pick up, will do the trick. These demons will be compelled to stop and pick each one up. Which is, I'm sure, unintentionally hilarious, because it just brings to mind a scene like... <laughs> Fear me, mortal. Your soul is mine to rip and tear. No, put that down. No, don't do that. No, curse you, Jeff. Now there are thousands of seeds everywhere. It'll take an age for me to pick them all up. And yet, something quite similar happens in Tomb Raider. In order for Lara to pass the sea hag creature, she drops the coin into a cage, distracting it, compelling it to try and pick it up, which gives Lara the opportunity to trap it. After all this research I've done, it wouldn't surprise me if that cage was made of iron too, just to be safe. As I mentioned at the very start of this episode, demons have featured throughout the Tomb Raider series, not just in Tomb Raider Chronicles, but I think that's enough for a start, because if I carry on then I'm likely to have nightmares. I admire how Chronicles tackled so many old world myths and demon lore when it came to its depiction of the diabolical, whereas so many other games and films would just have had their protagonist fill their evil entity with lead, Tomb Raider took the smarter approach and had Lara fight off the darkness with quite literally some good old fashioned education and books. Thanks for listening, if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to subscribe to Raidercast on your favourite streaming platform or app. Check out the corresponding video for some visual accompaniment on my YouTube channel at Azrael Khan, and follow along on Twitter at RaiderCastPod. Sleep well.